think we are all familiar with the term stress. We all have our share of it. Maybe more than our share of it here of late, you might think. The term has only been around for about 50 years or well, maybe a little more than that, not long at all. I think it's uh, probably more like 60 or 70 years. It was coined by a Hungarian doctor by the name of Hans Sheljay. I apologize if I am butchering the pronunciation, but it's the best I can come up with as to the way it's supposed to be pronounced. It's S-E-L-Y-E, Y-E in the English. Sheljay was born in 1907 in Hungary. His family had produced four generations of medical doctors. He himself began medical school at the German uh, Medical School in Prague at age 17. He graduated first in his class. He went on to earn a doctorate in organic chemistry. And it was Seljay who observed that patients, though they had completely different issues medically, oftentimes had a lot of the same symptoms. And this led him to a study of what he eventually called stress. The body's response to all of the difficulties, physical and otherwise, that was being endured. In 1949, J. wrote his monumental tome called simply Stress. He was quite an individual. He worked 10 to 14 hours a day, every day, holidays, weekends included. He wrote over 40 books in his lifetime and published over 1,700 articles. He was fluent in eight languages and could uh, converse in a half a dozen more. An unbelievable intellect. Now, with that as a background, I want to read you, and this is a quote from something that came out of some of his writings about stress. And what he said was that there were two emotions, two emotions in life that were the most destructive in terms of the damage it did to people and the stress that it caused people. And he said, on these two emotions and how you dealt with them would depend your peace of mind, our feelings of security or insecurity, our fulfillment or our frustration. To the extent that he said, which really is the entirety of what we would call success of life. Now, we understand this, this is the medical doctor. We, we would have a lot more to say from, and will have a lot more to say to this from the spiritual perspective. But here's, here's those two emotions. He said, among all the emotions, there is one which more than any other accounts for the absence or presence of stress in human relations. You know what that one is? Gratitude. 
He said the number one emotion, the number one thing in your life that will, will determine the absence or the presence to one degree or another of stress in your life is gratitude. He called it an emotion. I would call it a choice. He said the most destructive one, that's the most profitable one. The other one on the other end of the spectrum, the most destructive emotion, he called revenge. But I would include and expand that to talk about the unwillingness to forgive. Now, with this background in mind, remember we're looking at one of uh, seven types of psalms or categories of psalms. And we're on number six out of a study of seven. And Psalm 138 is what we call a thanksgiving psalm. We've already looked at the wisdom psalm, the uh, others in your list here, all the way down to number six. This is a thanksgiving psalm. So uh, we are going to be talking about thanksgiving. And what an interesting observation from someone who, not even looking at this from a scriptural perspective at all, but says that gratitude is the most productive human emotion in regards to reducing stress. Well, Psalm 38 was written by David, and it says so right here in the heading, a Psalm of David. That's not something added by the English translators. That's in the original Hebrew. In fact, it's verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. It's the heading to the Psalm. David wrote Psalm 138. I know there's those commentaries you can find and those people that think they know more than the Word of God or think they've got to add to it or take away from it that will argue the point. But David wrote Psalm 138. And what better person, what better author from the human perspective than David because he had suffered probably stresses beyond anything that we can even imagine. He probably wrote, and most commentators, Bible-believing commentators, will agree that he probably wrote Psalm 138 after he became the king of Israel. And probably after God had revealed to him the Davidic covenant, which promised that a member of his family would sit on the throne of David throughout eternity. And of course, we know that that's going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. When David writes a psalm of thanksgiving, looking back on his days of suffering, he had spent seven or eight years running all over the Judean wilderness, hiding in caves and and fleeing at a moment's notice, this time and that time, from the jealous and uh, demon-oppressed King Saul, who wanted to kill him. And later in life, David just finally gave up and he went to Philistia. And he dwelt among the Philistines. And he, he, he suffered for that too. That was a wrong choice. But he, he was that discouraged at that point in time that he had, he had given up. Remember, he would not strike back at Saul. We noticed this last week. He would not do anything because Saul was God's anointed. And as he told Abishai last week, we noticed, don't, don't touch him. Don't kill him. He's in the hands of God. David, though, became very distressed and discouraged on multiple occasions and endured so much stress as a result of those years. After his initial success in killing Goliath and and being the great Hebrew in Israel. Now, 
What we're going to find in Psalm 138 is this. There's great, great benefit to being a thankful person. Yes, that's what Hans Selje said. But he didn't say it near as well or to near the degree that David, by personal experience, relates to us. And uh, with the help of the Spirit of God who inspired it, enumerates for us and, and outlines for us and and emphasizes to us the great, great benefit of being thankful. Now, the problem is that we underappreciate this matter of thanksgiving, except for maybe at Thanksgiving time. And then we probably underappreciate it then as well. But it is a highly beneficial activity to your personal well-being, to your spiritual well-being, to be thankful. And this is what Psalm 138 demonstrates. And as you take in the whole of this psalm, here is a conclusion for you. Without thankfulness, life is robbed of its joy and purpose. That's a pretty deep, that's a pretty big statement. But I think if you put it all together and you roll it all together, that's exactly what we find. Without thankfulness, life is robbed of its joy and purpose. So let's take a look at Psalm 138 and note here the highly beneficial aspects of being thankful. Number one, thanksgiving represents the highest of devotion. I'm sure we could put others on the same level. But note with me what he says here. He says, I will praise you with my whole heart. That's verse 1. I will praise you with my whole heart, Lord, with nothing held back. I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods I will sing praises to you. Now, the gods here are uh, not real gods. You notice there's a little G. He's talking about the idols that all the kings and the nations around about Israel worship. He said, in the midst of all this idol worship, I'm going to be praising the real God, the only God, Yahweh, with my whole heart. And my friends, that's what we are, what we should be at this moment in history. We should be people of thanksgiving whose voice rings out loud in a world of turmoil and discouragement and fear. As we, in our praise and worship of God, present a testimony to the world. Notice it is unceasing praise that David is talking about. How do I know that? Because it is an imperfect verb in the Hebrew. That means it's something that just continues as a state of being. And David says, look, I'm going to praise you with my whole heart, and that's just going to characterize my life. That's going to be my purpose and my plan and my my dedication and my love. It's going to be all that I ever want to do and will do. I will praise you, he says. Now, notice also it is purposeful praise. 
How do I know that? Well, again, the verb in the Hebrew is not only imperfect, which represents an ongoing incomplete state, but it is also a verb form in the Hebrew that indicates it's something that David intended, intends to do and decides to do. It's not that, you know, he's just somehow overwhelmed by God's goodness and he just kind of happens to slip out. You know, I mean, it's a normal, natural response, I think, for most of us. If somebody does something nice for us to say, thank you. But David has been through such turmoil, such stress. And yet he says, look, no matter how I feel, no matter what the situation, no matter what, I am going to decide, determine, and I'm going to be thankful by choice of my own will. And that's where we need to be every day. Now, it's not only unceasing praise and purposeful praise, it's also intense praise. As if I haven't emphasized that already. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. And that's another, a different Hebrew verb form, which in, means it's an intense activity. He praises God with his whole heart by the choice of his own will, and he puts his whole heart into it. Notice also it's musical and vocal praise here. I will praise you indicates in the Hebrew, that verb, the playing of instruments. And then he says in the latter part of the verse, in the parallel part, I will sing, you'll sing with his mouth, vocal and musical. It's also personal worship here. Notice the first person, I will praise you, I will sing. And then in verse 2, I will worship you. David says, it doesn't matter what anybody else is going to do. It's wonderful to worship together, and there's great benefit in that, and great encouragement and strength in that, but each individual has to bring their own personal, purposeful praise into the worship of God. And it's shown here by this verb at the beginning of verse 2, I will worship, which in the Hebrew means literally I'm going to fall down and prostrate myself on the ground. I'm going to bow down to God. That's what worship is. Worship is not just making beautiful music and singing beautiful words, but it's the heart being bowed before Christ that understands that He is everything and obedience to Him is everything. And so He says, I will worship toward your holy temple. And then He adds this, for your loving kindness and your truth. So He gives us the content of worship, the content of devotion, loving kindness. That's a word you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, various contexts. And it's a, it's a very specific word in the Hebrew, which means the faithfulness of God. But it not only means just the faithfulness of God, but it means the faithfulness of God to his promises. And again, probably David has just now experienced, as he writes this, the, the Davidic covenant where God said, you're not going to build a temple, that's going to be for someone else. That was David's desire. But he said, this is what you're going to see. There's going to be someone sitting on the throne of David forever. Someone from your family. That is the content of the loving kindness. The loving kindness here is he knows God is going to be faithful to that promise. It's never, ever 
going to be set aside. For you, he says, for you have magnified your word above all your name. There again, the word of God in that covenant. In the day when I cried out, he says, now you answered me. Now he moves on to another topic there. But the first thing we notice here is that thanksgiving represents the deepest and the highest of devotion. Then number two, thanksgiving requires thoughtful reflection. Thoughtful reflection. Now we we just read it. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. That's verse three. So, he, he switches gears and he, he stops talking about the praise that he is rendering. And he begins to look at the reason that he is praising God to this extent. So he has to reflect on things that God has done for him in the past. He says, in the day when I cried out. Now that's not an imperfect verb in the, in the Hebrew. That's a perfect verb. So he's just... Describing something that happened in the past and it's over with. He says, there was a day when I cried out. He's looking back. But the day I cried out to you, Lord, you came on the scene. You showed up. And you made me bold with strength in my soul. On occasions past, the help of God that you and I have experienced, the answered prayers that you and I have No, they will give you strength. They will give you what you need in the present moment. In the presence of stress, distress, discouragement, and all the rest. There was a lady by the name of Ann Kiefer who began as a a teenager to make a list of everything that made her happy. She did this for a number of years, and finally in her 20s, she wrote a book entitled 14,000 Things to Be Happy About. 14,000 Things to Be Happy About. You can still find it. I mean, the book is on Amazon. I've not read it, but that just strikes me as the reality of life. We'd probably be hard-pressed to come up with five or ten off the top of our head, right? (laughs) But by the way, back when we... Uh, first went in this pandemic and uh, uh, we're doing the devotions online. By the way, Pastor Travis's devotion wasn't on there Friday because we're having all kind of technical difficulties. Someday they go on, some days they don't. We don't know why. Uh, trying to work on that. But um, back early on when we started those daily devotions on Facebook, I encourage you to, to send in and let me know by comments or otherwise things that you were thankful for. And I think quickly, within within a week and a half, two weeks, I said, let's see if we can come up with 100. We, we, we went right past 100 in a week or so. Uh, I wonder if we would have gotten to 14,000 if we would have kept on. Uh, anybody continue to add to the list that got that far? <laughs> okay. We have much, much to be thankful for. But you see, we have a, we have a, a difficult time was really looking back and making the right conclusions or coming to the right conclusions. It's kind of like the old guy who said, you know, I'm really upset to his friend. And his friend said, well, why are you upset? He said, well, my uncle died and left me $500,000. The guy said, 
What? You're upset? Because your uncle died and left you $500,000? He says, yeah, but you don't understand. Two weeks ago, my aunt died and left me $750,000. He said, wait a minute. You're upset because your uncle died and left you $500,000. Your aunt died and left you seven. He said, yeah, but you don't understand. Three weeks ago, my cousin died and left me a million dollars. He said, I can't believe it. Why are you upset? He said, well, I ain't got anything this week. <laughs> That's how we look at the blessings of God. We look at them as something God owes us. And we, we look at them as something to be consumed on our desires. When they should be something that makes us marvel at the goodness and the grace of God. And thankful to our core for the smallest of gestures. And the smallest of answered prayers. Thoughtful reflection is required. Then number three, there's this matter of hopeful anticipation. When we become thankful, we become hopeful. When we become thankful, we look beyond the present circumstance. When we are truly thankful because we have reflected on what God has done, we realize God's got tomorrow in hand too. So let's look at it together beginning at verse 4. And all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Now what... What days is he talking about? It's translated in a future tense here in the English. All the kings of the earth shall praise you. They, 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 the kings of the earth were not praising God then when he wrote this. He was probably the only king in the whole of the earth that was praising God when he wrote this. But because he has reflected on God's goodness and he's become thankful for all that God has done for him, he has now become anticipatory of all that God's going to do. And it's going to reach a point in which all the kings of the earth, all the kings of the earth are going to praise you, God. Now, that's going to come in the millennium. That's going to come during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And it's predicted, it's talked about, it's prophesied in Scripture. I don't know how much of that prophecy... David would have known, or how much there even was. Most of it came after David's time. Now it's an interesting group of verbs here in the Hebrew, but you don't see too much. It's translated as a future, which sometimes the imperfect, which means the state of being is not complete, reaches into the future. But the person is changed here. It's not first person anymore. It's second person. Excuse me, it's third person, I believe it is. This is what's called in the Hebrew language a jussive verb. A jussive verb, and just reading this in English, you just can't pick it up. But a jussive verb in the Hebrew is between a verb which just means something that exists, Stative. 
and something over here that is commanded. It's, it's between just what is and what should be. And it's used to express excited and forceful and intense anticipation. And I don't know how much David really even, I don't know how much prophecy he would have had. Not much prophecy of that regard. Uh, most of that came from the minor prophets and the major prophets. But David is elevated because of his thanksgiving. He's elevated to a point where he can anticipate without having the specific prophecy in mind. Other than his own prophecy that a family member of his is going to sit on the throne of Israel. But what about all these other kings? There's no kings praising God now, but David says, wait a minute. I can, I, if God can do this, he, he can and, and do this, and surely he'll do this. I'm looking forward to the day when I'm not the only one that's praising you, Lord. I look forward to the day when your praise is universal in this world. Wow, will that be the day? Whoa. Can you imagine a worship service during the millennium? <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. I, I guess there may be church buildings, but they won't be big enough to hold everybody. Because everybody will go to church. And everybody will sing praises to God. Everybody. Now, some will be insincere and They'll be dealt with at the end of the, that millennium, but boy, I, I can't even imagine it. This is the kind of anticipation David has. Then number four, a fourth benefit. Thanksgiving in your heart will promote deeper understanding. Now what do we mean by that? Let's look at verse 6. After describing his anticipation of what's going to be, he says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. David has come to an understanding of the character of God. He's come to an understanding of the motivation of God, or the, 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 the the way that he deals with people through all of this. And he says, I've come to understand that if you're humble, God's going to take care of you. That word here, knows, means care. It's contrasted to the word regards the lowly. It's talking about the love of God, the care of God who watches over us. And He's saying, if you're humble, God's going to be so focused on your needs and He's going to meet those needs and lift you up. But if you're prideful, if you're prideful, eh, God, God doesn't mean God doesn't care about you at all, but His way of dealing with you is so far removed versus the way He deals with the humble. Now, there's a verse from Luke chapter 14, verse 11, I want you guys to put up here for me. Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You see, that's why his care is different, because he's going to take the prideful people and lower them down a notch or two. That's not a fun activity for God. 
That's not something he wants to do on his day off, you know, so to speak. That, that, that's a sad circumstance. But God has to bring the hump, bring the prideful down. But it's a joyful, loving thing for him to lift up the humble. And by lift up, that, 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 that picture there is of lifting up somebody who's fallen, lifting up somebody, helping them to stand, helping them to have what they need, supporting them, and all of that. Now, not only do we find a statement like this from the lips of Jesus in, John, in Luke 14, 11, and I'm not going to put these on screen, but jot down Job 22, verse 29. There's where all this series of verses begins, Job 22, 29. Then you have the Luke 14, 11 verse. You can read it again. Uh, did I say 14, 11? Is that what you put up there, 14, 11, or 18? Okay. Uh, you can see it again in 18 of Luke and verse 14 and again in James chapter 4 and verse 10 and virtually the same thing over in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is just something repeated over and over and over and over again in Scripture. And if the Scripture says it once, it's important, but if it says it five or six times, I think God wants us to get that. So we need to come to that understanding. We typically go through life concerned about where we stand with other people and what we can achieve and who notices and who thanks us and, and, uh, who rewards us and, and who's our friend. And it's, it's all about who we are. But I'm telling you what, if you get around somebody who is shot through and through with pride, it just makes you sick. That's what it does. And when you can understand life from that perspective, then you've gained understanding. Let's move to number five. And this is where it really gets encouraging to me. The fifth benefit. Thanksgiving results in blessed assurance. I just appropriated that language from the song. But it's assurance here. Of the best kind. The most blessed kind. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. He's coming to a conclusion here. He's saying, God, when I cried out in the past, you came to my aid. I know you're going to do great things in the future. I've already discussed that, but but I'm going to have some problems going forward too. And when I do, I know you're going to be there for me. That's what he's saying. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, he knows he's going to walk in trouble again. By the way, if you've got another day to live in life, you're going to walk in trouble again. Somehow, some way, life is full of trouble. We bring it on ourselves because we are sinners at heart. <coughs> The world we live in brings it upon us because the world is de- depraved in every way. This world is full of trouble. But when we walk in trouble, God will revive us, stretch out his hand. He's using picturesque language here. And he will save us from th- that trouble. That's what he's talking about. I'm talking about eternal salvation. Now look at verse 8. He sums it all up, and this is this is the real blessing. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Now, that doesn't say a whole lot to us in the English translation. 
But the word perfect is a Hebrew word which means to complete, to finish. And it's simply saying that no matter what trouble we walk in, no matter how often we need to depend on God to revive us and to stretch out His hand and to lift us up, no, no matter how much the wrath of our enemies come against us, God is not going to fail. He is going to complete His purposes for us in this life. That's what he's saying. You know, we so often as human beings sit around and say, I think I failed. I, I know, we all do it. I've done it, you've done it. People I've talked to this week have done it because I've heard it. I, I think I, I just, I, I don't, I think I failed somehow. If I should, I should have done this. If, if, if I'd have done this, if I'd have done that, if I, if I, uh, then, 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 maybe I would be more usable for God. I'd be more in the center of God's will. Listen, here's the way God works. You know, when you used to go to restaurants and they give you the, <laughs> by the way, everybody's going to restaurants. You can't get in a doggone restaurant. Anywhere, I found that out Friday night. We had to go to three just to get in the door somewhere to have a pizza. I guess that's because they can only put half as many people in there. So, you know, half of the people are going to be disappointed to one end. But I don't know. Anyway, when you used to go to a restaurant and they give you the little thing for the kids, you know, a little kid's menu and a little, some crayons. And what you'll find there quite often is what you call a puzzle maze. You know what I'm talking about, a little square. And you got to, it says start here with your crayon or your pencil. And you move through this maze and you, you wiggle all around and you try to get down here. Only the the path you've got to follow isn't apparent. You're going to run into roadblocks. You're going to turn around and go back and try another way. That's God's will operative in your life and mine. And we we run headlong into some roadblock and we're bashing our brains out when we're complaining God isn't with us and God somehow, you know, has forgot about us or maybe I failed or with the life, you know. That's just God turning you around. He's just giving you another direction. We wouldn't, we would never end up in the center of God's will by our own effort. But by the sovereign will of God, He keeps us funneled to where He wants us and how He wants us to operate and where He wants us to be and what we should be doing. And David says, look, he says, The Lord will complete His plan for you and me. Is there any better promise than that? Is there any better reason to praise His name? The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Hey, (laughs) why do we need mercy? Because we're going to hit them roadblocks and we're going to squeal like pigs, you know? Well, oh no! Lord, I can't believe you haven't answered my prayer. I can't get through this mess. Yes, you can. It's just a different route. And we, we are by, by our sinful nature, not subject to doing this gracefully, but then God's merciful. He's merciful to all of us. Without His mercy, 
we'd be totally useless. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands, he says. This is his plea. This is his prayer on the end of everything. Don't forsake us, Lord. He knows the Lord won't forsake us. He's our hope. He's our stay. He's everything. And it all just kind of comes together like a popcorn ball. (laughs) You know what I mean? A popcorn ball is all kind of glued together with some kind of syrup or something. And then you can just pick it up and, you know, really get a handle on what you want to eat. Instead of trying to dip it out of a bowl and it's going everywhere, you know. But God just brings every aspect of our life, His mercy, His sovereignty, together like that. And He accomplishes His perfect will. And we don't see it when it's half finished. But in heaven one day we're going to see it. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be something to praise God for throughout eternity. So why not start now? Start now when that thanksgiving can literally revolutionize the life you live today.